So today, uh, as I begin to speak to you, I want to mention to you that there's a Bible app event for this message. If you have a smartphone, you can load it up and you're going to find a lot of scripture on there, um, a lot of uh, information on there. I'm going to put some of that on the screen also. I'm not going to ask you to open your Bibles to a particular passage because there's so many of them. Uh, it might just frustrate you along the way, but you're welcome to follow along if you want to as uh, the passages come up. Um, I can remember growing up on a farm that when we would get a new piece of equipment, it always came with a manual, an assembly manual, on how to put it together. I can remember one time we got a snowblower, and uh, my dad brought that home. It was in a small box, and it was one of those big walk-behind ones. And he held up the assembly instructions, and he looked at me and said, hey, here's the assembly instructions, Steve. And I said, yeah, what are we going to do with those? He said, this. And he just threw them, and we put them together without the instructions, because that's just kind of the way we thought. It was kind of a puzzle. It was kind of a fun thing to do. We liked doing things without instructions. I don't like reading the manual. I'd rather figure it out myself. That's how I am. And that's why I don't cook, because recipe books, those are nothing but user manuals, and I'm not interested in in them at all. And my wife cooks anyway, so I'm in luck when it comes to that. Now, when it comes to putting a snowblower together, it's not a big deal if you don't read the assembly instructions. If you put your hand in the wrong place when it's running, that's a big deal, but that's after it's already assembled, right? So when it comes to putting a lot of things together, you don't need to read the manual. But, But when it comes to putting your life together, reading the manual is probably something pretty important for each of us to do. Christians typically think of this book that I'm holding right here, the Bible, as a manual. It is a manual for how to live life well and how to know God and how to grow the way you were destined, you were created to grow, and how to even die well and how to find eternal life. This is a manual that covers those kinds of things. But sometimes, honestly, if we think about it, maybe we're not as familiar with it as we could be. Through the ministry of Pastor John Piper, I came upon a blog post from a woman named Jen Wilkin. I don't know her. She writes women's Bible studies, and she writes books as well, and uh, is pretty popular and pretty successful in that area. This blog post she had was called the Instagram Bible. You know, what, what does that even mean, the Instagram Bible? Well, you know, Instagram is a social media platform, and it's mostly just pictures. You can't write a lot of text on an Instagram thing that people are going to, but it's pictures. And so evidently a lot of people have, have put together like Bible verses. Maybe they made them with their YouVersion Bible app and shared them. Some people, according to her blog post, actually, they actually come in and they, they write these things. They draw them and put them together as though they're scrapbooking and then take a picture of them put them on Instagram. So in in one regard, Instagram is kind of like a cheap version of the Hallmark greeting card company. You know, you put that stuff together and then you send it in bulk and all your friends get to see it. Our our church uses Instagram. And so we put up posts like this. Um, That's a beautiful horizon there, the mountains in the background, and the text is, is lovely. It says, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. Isaiah 25, 8. That's good stuff, isn't it? That's inspiring. That's, that's the part of the Bible I really like to hear. I like that. I like that part of the Bible, that he's going to swallow death. That's good. Now, in her blog post, Jen Wilkins suggests that we need to read things like that and understand we're not getting the full pictures. And In fact, she says that I fear that some people just get their daily Bible reading from Instagram. And so they're reading the Instagram Bible, and they're not hearing the whole Bible when they're doing that. So to kind of demonstrate that, to prove her point, she posted this Bible verse. It says, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts. Judges 19.29. If that inspires you, you got a problem. <laughs> yeah, and, and she got inc- incredibly negative feedback from that. No wonder, but she's a brave woman. So she did it again, and she posted this. 
Then she went softly to him and drove the, pen, the peg into his temple, so he died. Judges 4, 21. Now, you understand what she's doing is she's making a point that there's more to the Bible than just those inspirational, uplifting, encouraging things. There's parts of the Bible that if we just use those other kinds of Instagram things, we might be in trouble. And in her blog post, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but let me just read some of it. She is a, a woman who ministers to women. And so she says this, Beware the Instagram Bible, my daughters. Those filtered frames festooned with feathered verses, adorned in all manner of loops and tails bedecked with blossoms, saturated with sunsets, called and curated just for you. Beware, lest it become the source of your daily bread. It is telling a partial truth. It comforts, but rarely convicts. It emotes, but rarely exhorts. It warms, but rarely warns. It promises, but rarely prompts. It moves, but does not mortify. It builds self-assurance, but balks at self-examination. Artists are constrained to choose brevity over breadth, inspiration over intellect, devotion over doctrine. Beware. Beware the Instagram Bible, my daughters, it shines a partial light. We must know it both for what it says and what it does not. Wow, I think she makes a good point. I think she's dead on there because a lot of the way we connect with today's Bible comes from sort of cherry-picked verses. Even sometimes if I'm reading, and I love these, the YouVersion Bible app plans, sometimes those plans are just cherry-picked verses and not giving me the whole counsel of God. Gives me passages I want to hear, but not passages maybe that God wants me to hear. Now, we are in a sermon series on where to look, where to look when you're in need, and we're using the Alliance Statement of Faith to answer these questions. Where do I look? And we talked about you look to the Father, to God the Father, because he's a good, good Father. You look to Jesus, the Son, because he is your Savior and friend. You look to the Holy Spirit and have him speak to you with wisdom that can come only from a counselor, a comforter like him. Today, I want to direct you to look to the Bible, to the Word of God. This sermon, I want to warn you, is the kind of sermon you're going to have to think through and kind of pay attention to. Um, sometimes a sermon is kind of like, it, we used to joke, you need a scripture verse, you need a hymn, and a story about a little boy with a pony, you know, and then you got a sermon, right? Um, this isn't that kind of sermon. This is maybe a little bit deeper, maybe a little more meaty for you. And so stay with me. Don't, uh, don't fall asleep. I think it will be very valuable to you. In the Christian and Missionary Alliance, we say this about the Bible. We say the Old and New Testaments, inerrant as originally given, were verbally inspired by God and are a complete revelation of his will for the salvation of men. They constitute the divine and the only role for Christian faith and practice. That's good stuff. You're thinking, I don't even know what that meant, right? That's what I want to talk to you about. And I'm indebted to, uh, I discovered a book this past month. I actually read it when I was on vacation um, by Paul E. Little, Know Why You Believe. I don't know where this book has been all my life. It is one of the best books on understanding why I am a Christian that I've ever read. And so I'm going to, probably about a third of the information I'm going to share with you is kind of brought to my mind by having read this book by Paul Little, and I want to give him credit for that. I want to begin with maybe giving you some solid reasons that you should look to the Word of God. And the first reason is this, that the word of God speaks to us with infallibility. 
Now, there are some groups that believe that the Bible is the only way that God speaks, and that's it. He just speaks through the Bible, and he doesn't speak otherwise. And I get that. I understand that. I would agree with that. I would just want to add one word to that, and that's the word infallibly. That the Bible is the only place that God speaks infallibly. But he does speak otherwise. For example, the psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And so there the heavens are speaking to me, right? Uh, Additionally, there's a story in the Bible where there was a, a, a guy who was going somewhere he shouldn't have gone to do something he shouldn't do, and a donkey spoke to him. The King James says it better. Yeah. And I think that's intentional because a donkey just seems like a dumb animal. It's not a stallion. It's not a steed. It's not a Mustang. It's a donkey. And a donkey speaking to him. That wasn't a bad donkey impersonation, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, God can use anything to speak. He uses your time here at church when you're meeting together with friends, even in the lobby, in a small group, at home, in in a Bible study, in, in a Sunday school class, he can speak. Through the music, when you hear his love never fails, never gives up on me, that can speak. In a prayer time, when Dave is praying, that can speak to you. And And even in a sermon, God can speak to you. But in none of those does he speak infallibly. He speaks infallibly in his word. Infallibly means with no errors. There's no mistakes here, no, 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 no bloopers in the Bible. Now, as soon as I say that, someone will say, I don't know, I've, what about all those mistakes that are in the Bible? Are you just ignoring those? And I love to say back when someone says that, which ones are you referring to? Because usually when someone says, what about the mistakes in the Bible? One of four things is happening. Num- number one, maybe they're parroting something that they heard. Maybe they read it on social media, you know, or, or maybe they had a professor in college or even in high school, a teacher, or maybe it was, you know, that uncle at the family reunion who was just running his mouth, that guy who said there are a lot of mistakes in the Bible and they're just parroting that back. They don't really know that there are mistakes, but they're, they're saying that. That's one thing that could be happening. Another thing that could be happening is they're mistaken about something in the Bible. Maybe they've read it wrong. For example, maybe they're thinking the Bible, the Bible believes that the earth is flat. That's what it is. It's a flat earth. The Bible teaches that because it says from the four corners of the earth, right? No, 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 no. It's not, it's not a mistake. It's literature. That's the way literature works. That's the way people work. I have searched the four corners of this earth for the remote control for my television, and I cannot find it. And we would say that doesn't mean we think the earth is flat. Sometimes they're just misunderstanding it. Sometimes people get consumed with minutia in the Bible and and they miss the big picture. And and fourth, sometimes people just don't want to hear. Sometimes people say there's a lot of mistakes in the Bible because then they don't have to think about the Bible and what it might want to say to them. When you get past those issues and when you begin to look at the Bible, you can understand it really is inerrant as originally given. It is infallible and that's a reason you should look to it. Here's the second reason you should look to the word of God. It's because it's not a person speaking for God. It is God himself speaking. Dave Clark said it again this morning. God, please let Pastor Steve speak your words to us. I appreciate that, Dave. Thank you for doing that. The elder in the early service did it as well. Let's just be real clear, though. What I speak, that's not this. You understand? This is infallible. I am am fallible at times. And so when Pastor Steve is speaking, it is not God speaking. But when this is speaking, that's God speaking. That's God speaking. We say that for a number of reasons. One is that the Bible claims to be the word of God. Over and over again, you hear it in the King James. I loved how it said it. Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God Almighty. Thus saith the Lord Almighty. Thus saith the Lord. He's doing the speaking. And the Apostle Paul, one of the men that God used to write a considerable portion of the scripture, 
said in 2 Timothy chapter 3 in verse 16, he said that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. I want to talk about that word, God-breathed. Other translations, older ones, say it differently. They use the word inspire or inspired. In fact, the King James says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for these things. That word inspired, I like that word. The actual term, though, when you look at the Greek language, is God breathed, that God himself breathed these words. Literally, what is there is what he has said. Sometimes we use the word inspired to mean something different than that. For example, someone might say, I've got to tell you, man, <laughs> that audible that they made in that game, that was inspired play right there. That doesn't mean that God breathed that audible. We're using the word inspired differently. Or maybe this, Elizabeth Barrett Browning was inspired when she wrote the words, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depth and breadth of, and height my soul can reach. I can remember the first time I read that, it was probably 15 years ago. I came across it online and I was reading it for a sermon or something. Now, I, I want to tell you this, man. I am all boy. I am as male as can be, and I am as tough as any of you. I could probably take all of you right now, right? My wife often says to me, man, you are just too blue, which means you are too male, because I am all male. But when I read that, I kind of got goosebumps. Oh, she's inspired when she wrote that, Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Yeah, but not like the Bible. Not like the Bible. Not Lizzie. That's what I call Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Lizzie. Yeah, she's not like the Bible. You, know, you notice that we don't say this. We don't say, David was inspired when he wrote, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We say those words are inspired. They're breathed by God. We don't say, wow, John, when he wrote the Gospel of John, he was inspired when he did that. We say the Gospel of John is the inspired word of God. It is God-breathed, because God-breathed refers not to the writers, but to the words, not to the 40 men who penned those words, but to the 66 books that were penned. They are breathed by God. And that means that the message originated with God, and the Bible says so. Peter says, for prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets through, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean he dictated the words. I'll talk about that later. It doesn't mean that the people holding the pens were Google text, um, speech to text and trying to, to write down what you were dictating. They used their own vocabularies, their own writing style. What it means, though, is the Spirit of the God carried the writers so that what was written was the Word of God. And what they wrote was what God had in mind. Let me give you a couple examples from Scripture of that. When you get to 2 Samuel chapter 23, you're coming to the end of King David's life. He wrote a lot of the Psalms. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. David, he wrote that, right? And, and so David, at the end of his life, he makes this remark. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. Ah, there it is, evidence. Even the New Testament writers understood that Old Testament text is coming from God. They said, Scripture foreknew that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. And then it quotes the Old Testament saying, all nations will be blessed through you. And what, it, what it's saying there, what Galatians is saying there is that Genesis 12, that is God speaking and God knowing what was going to happen in advance. You can really see that God's word is a good place for us to look when we're in need. Let me give you another reason. Another reason is this. The writers of the Bible felt like they were writing God's word. In fact, the Apostle Paul, he claims that kind of authority. 
He's writing to a group of Christians in Corinth, and in chapter 14, he says, if anyone thinks they're a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that, and hear this phrase, what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. There it is. Let me tell you something. If he's not sure of that, he's blaspheming. Anybody who says, what I'm writing is from God, and they're not sure it's from God, oh, watch out for the lightning strike right there. You know, taking the Lord's name in vain is not so much about saying, jeepers, creepers, what just happened there? As it is about saying, God said this when he didn't say it. You're taking his name in vain when you do that. And the Apostle Paul would never do that. He would never do that. So he is saying, what I'm writing is the word of God, and I'm willing to say so. Peter indicates that he believed that Paul wrote God's words. That's pretty cool. Peter and Paul, they were contemporaries of one another. And Peter is writing, and he says in 2 Peter 3, he says, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you, and then catch this phrase, with wisdom that God gave him. And then he goes on, and Peter is very clear. He says, Paul writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do with the, here it is, other scriptures to their own destruction. Hmm. Scriptures, holy writings from God. I feel like probably the word of God is something we should look to when we're in need. There's another reason, because Jesus saw the Bible as being from God. Jesus, when he began his ministry, he's baptized. He goes into the, into the desert where he's tempted for 40 days by the devil. And they, we get a, a, a look at their dialogue together. And every time Satan tempts him, Jesus answers with these three words. It is written. It is written. It is written. And so Jesus, when he's standing against Satan, the weapon he uses is the word of God because he saw it as carrying authority. He pressed hard concerning the way it endures. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything's accomplished. It will endure. And then he says that it's unbreakable. He's having an argument with the religious leaders of his day. He says, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, but here's the phrase I want you to catch, and the scripture cannot be broken, Jesus says. Then he goes on to make his point. I'm not sure. (laughs) I'm not sure that I can call myself a Christ follower if I do not agree with Christ concerning the authority of his word. How could I? How would I know anything about Jesus were it not for the book that is in my hand? So it's surely a place I should turn when I'm in need. Now, I want to get, some of you are here for the first time. I'm not usually this, I hate to use this word, academic, because it doesn't feel real academic. But I'm going to kind of, you're going to feel like you're in school for the next five minutes, okay? Because I'm going to give you some vocabulary words. I'm going to give you some definitions, because as Christians, we tend to throw these words around as though we know them, when maybe we don't talk about them a lot. And I'm going to give them to you in phrases. The first of them is this. Inerrant is originally given. We see the Bible as being inerrant as originally given. Now, when we say inerrant, that doesn't mean it does not have grammatical peculiarities, right? I'm not sure about this, but I think that Peter was the kind of guy who might have said ain't. And all my English teachers said there ain't no such word as ain't, right? That's okay. Those grammatic um, peculiarities don't mean that it's not the word of God at all and don't mean that it is in error. Likewise, um, it doesn't mean that the Bible can't use estimates when it's talking about numbers. Do you ever think about this? 
There's, in the Bible, there's a story of the feeding of the 4,000 and this feeding of the 5,000. I believe those are two separate events, okay? What, what I find remarkable is first, that they fed that many people with that little food, and second, that there were exactly 4,000 people showed, men showed up that day. How were there not 4,012? And at the feeding of the 5,000, how were there not like 4,997? There might have been. There might have been. You understand that when, when we all use estimates all the time, I was going like 90 mile an hour to get here, right? That's an estimate. I wasn't really. I wasn't really. I just came two blocks. I couldn't get it up to that speed. <laughs> right? So what, what we're saying when we say it's inerrant is this. It's very simple. We're saying <coughs> that the Bible doesn't affirm anything contrary to fact. So my buddy Mike, when 30 years ago, we're sitting in a church together. First time Mike had been there in ages, maybe the last time he was ever there. He picked up a pew Bible while we're waiting for it to start. He opened it to Ephesians 5 and he read this verse. Wives, submit to your husbands. And he, and he pointed at it and he said, that's wrong. Like, who are you to say the Bible's wrong? Um, it's not. You are in error, Mike. Not the Bible in error. The point of inerrancy is this, that the Bible is smarter than we are. We do not look down at it. We look up to it. Here's another important phrase, verbally inspired. It's important to me that you understand that doesn't mean that the words were dictated. Peter was obviously a fisherman, and his language, the vocabulary he uses, his short sentences, small words. That's what I use too. I'm the same as Peter. Paul, on the other hand, was a scholar, and Paul uses pages of sentences. His sentences go on for what we would consider paragraphs. Where's the period, Paul? Get to the end. But that's the way a scholar would write. So verbal inspiration does not mean it was dictated by God. Verbal inspiration means that the actual verbiage used, the words on the page, are the words that God wanted. It's what he intended. And so you can have figures of speech here. You can say, the mountains leaped, and that's okay. You can say, the trees of the field will clap their hands, that's okay. You can use, the authors could use whatever language was, was um, common for them. And God looked at it as he oversaw it and said, yeah, that, that's exactly what I want to be there. We look to it because it's what God gave us to look to. Here's a third phrase, complete revelation of his will. That means the Bible is all we need. We don't need something else. We come to Sunday morning services and hear a sermon, not because I got to tell you something that's not in the Bible, <laughs> all right? I'm not here to tell you something that's not in the Bible. I'm here to tell you what's in the Bible because it is all we need. We don't need something written by Joseph Smith. We don't need the Mormon Bible. We don't need some kind of a crystal ball. We don't need some kind of church ruler to tell us what God has on his mind. We have the complete revelation of his will. And, and a phrase that is similar to that is, it is the only rule, the divine and only rule, for faith and practice. That connects to the previous phrase. No one can add to the Bible and, and give us more information. If you go to a church where, where someone says, well, the Bible says this, but our pastor always said that but is a big problem, right? Because it's not what your pastor always said, it's what the Bible says. I often hear people saying, well, I know that's in the Bible, but I've, been always, I've always been taught. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Huh. The Bible wins because it is the divine and only rule for faith and practice. So let me take the last 10 or 12 minutes here to talk to you about how we look to the Word of God. And I'm going to give you six questions you can ask that kind of apply to six rules of hermeneutics. Now, I need to do a poll. This is a friendly neighborhood poll. Are you ready? I just used the word. Hermeneutics. How many of you know what that means? Put your hand up. One, two, three. Okay, four. Probably half of us are lying. But, and I pointed right at Andy for that. <laughs> no, he's not lying. I know he's not lying. Okay, yeah. 
When, when I, I was studying engineering at the university, and then I went to, in the middle of the year, in January, I went to study Bible and theology, and the, one of the, the very first course I had at 8 o'clock in the morning, on the first day of my college, Christian college um, experience, the name of the course was hermeneutics. The only Herman I knew was Herman Munster, <laughs> right? I had no idea what that course meant. Here's what it is. This is your $32 word. might even be 64. Are you ready? Hermeneutics is the science of biblical interpretation. Ah, a science of biblical interpretation? Who needs that, man? It can mean whatever I say it means, right? Nope. (laughs) That's why we need hermeneutics. It is how we look at the word of God. It is how we understand the word of God. I'm going to give you six questions to ask in a minute. But before I do that, I want to prove to you that you need a science of hermeneutics. And I want to prove that to you by a Bible verse in 2 Peter 1, verse 20. Listen to this verse. But know, know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Huh. Well, wait a minute. I have this interpretation, and Dave has that interpretation. Are you saying one of us is wrong? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's what I'm saying. One of us is wrong. Well, that's what Peter, that's what the Bible is saying, right? Unless you want to interpret that differently. (laughs) Right? So we need to have some kind of a method of interpretation. And, and we can come up with some really wrong ways sometime. For example, there was a guy probably a couple decades ago named Michael Drosnan who wrote a book where he took the Bible, he took the Hebrew and Greek characters, assigned numeric values to them, ran them through a computer program, and came up with all kinds of phrases so that he could predict the future through this code system that he had, right? I knew a lot of Christians that were all over that. Like, whoa, this is it. I finally got the code. Look at this. And, and, and what we found out then later is you could put the writings of Nostradamus, you could put the Constitution of the United States, you could put the works of Edgar Allan Poe in there and come out with stuff. It was just random chance that that was happening. The name for that is numerology. Numerology applying it to Scripture. And when somebody's doing that, that's just foolishness. It's foolishness. And so that would be a wrong way to interpret the Bible. Do that with some love letters you got from your girlfriend. Okay, guys? Yeah. Maybe if you want to find out what she really meant, run it through the computer program. Who would do that? Somebody that wants to sell you a book to make a lot of money, that's who would do that. Okay. Here's another wrong way, and this is much more common. Well, what it means to me is this. What it means to me, now that's, that's easy to do because you do want to understand how it applies to you, but what it means to you and how it applies to you are really, they ought to be two different questions. I've told this story a couple of times. Every time I tell it, it gets better because that's why I am with stories, you know? <laughs> I was leading a Bible study. There were some 20-somethings at it a couple decades ago almost, right? Is it that long ago? 15 years ago, 12 years ago, something like that. We're sitting there and we're talking about the passage of Scripture. Here's what you need to know. 20-somethings, if you tell them, no, that's wrong, they won't come back to the next Bible study. There's a good chance of that, okay? It's the way millennials are. It's the way Generation X was. It's the way baby boomers were. It's the way all of us were. All of us were that way when we were 20-something. Remember this phrase, don't trust anyone over 40? We were all that way. We were all that way, right? And so when you're leading Bible study, you go and just let people say what they're going to say or they're not going to come back, right? Matt McCracken was in that Bible study. I have his permission to tell this story. I called him yesterday and got it again. He's given me permission in the past. <laughs> and, and Matt, I may not get it exactly right because I love to add color to such things, right? So some guy said some crazy thing, like, oh, I think this passage is about, you know, just some kind of crazy thing. And I'm listening to him, and I'm like, I understand, you know, I'm going to just let him say that. Maybe a couple other people did that. And I'm watching Matt. He's down at the other end of the room. And he's like, you know, he's sitting there, he's kind of like, <laughs> you know? And, and Matt, Matt is, he's really grown a lot, but he was really hyper about stuff like this when he was a kid. And, and, and finally he said, 
where's our hermeneutic? And he didn't say it that loud, but I'm making it that loud, right? And what he was saying was this. He's saying, what it means to you isn't worth anything if we don't know what it means. Get it? Get it? And Matt was dead on in that. It is important to know how it applies to me, but it's really important to know what it means, period. What does it mean? Here's a third way not to look to the Bible. It's the pray and point way. I've used it. Probably you have too. And and, and that's great. If you've used it and it's worked in your life, great. But I want to say to you, that's because of the grace of God. It's not because you're doing it the right way. That's because he's gracious, right? Here it is. I've done this before. You've heard of it, right? Here it is. It's like, God, I really need to hear from you regarding this thing. So I pray that you would speak to me through your word and tell me what, what I should do. Judas went out and hanged himself. Okay, God, that wasn't quite right. Um, maybe it was, I don't know what to do with that. Could you give me some further counsel, please? God, I really need to know what, what to do. Go thou and do likewise. Put those two together. God, that's not working. Please, God, show me what it is you need me to do. Show me what I need to do, please. What thou doest, do quickly. <laughs> wow, that's just not a good thing, right? That's, that's, that's a joke about the praying point thing. It's really probably not the best way to go about it. Let me give you some good ways to hear from God's, God through his word. And, and I'm going to give you six kind of basic rules of hermeneutics. Ready for them? Number one, what was the point of the writer? Discover what was the point of the writer and ask, how does that apply to me? If the writer is writing about the destruction of Jerusalem, then that's probably what the passage is about, the destruction of Jerusalem. It's probably not about the decline of the church in America. It's probably not about the Antichrist. It's probably not about the Catholic Church or the Lutheran Church or whatever church. It's probably about the the destruction of Jerusalem. That's what he's writing about. When you look to the Word of God, look for the point of the writer. And when you've discerned that, then ask the question, okay, so how does that apply to me? How does that apply to me? Question number two. What is the textual context of this concept? I mean, in the text, what is being spoken of here around the particular passage I'm looking at? And then ask, how does it apply to me? Don't take God's word out of context. Has anyone ever taken you out of context? Has anyone ever said, well, you said this. And you said, well, yeah, I said that, but I said that in the middle of this big thing here, right? People do that all the time. And when people do that to you, you don't like it. I don't think God likes it when we do it to him. You, you could do it to him. Let me give you an example of it. Maybe you're reading in the Gospel of John and you see Jesus is talking to this woman who's been caught in adultery and, and you just take these words, neither do I condemn you. Wow, those five words, those are great. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus said. And so then you say, that lets me know that Jesus never condemns sin. Wow, you've really taken out out of context, haven't you? Because what you're missing is the very next phrase, go and sin no more. And what you're missing is the previous activities where this woman had been caught in adultery and she was broken. She was repentant. She was humble. And Jesus is showing her grace because she is in that state. You understand? Don't take words of God out of their context. Take them in their context. And when you've discerned that, say, okay, so how does that apply to me? Here's the third one. What is the historical context of the concept, and how does that apply to me? Textual context is important, but what about historical context? What's happening in Rome during this time when Jesus is being born? What's happening in, in, in um, Babylon when Ezekiel was writing? What's happening in Egypt when 
when Joseph is there. What, what, what's going on in these places? Context. Historical context is really important. Let me say this. Slavery is a terrible thing. A terrible thing. And if you don't understand the context of the New Testament, then you can make two mistakes. If you don't understand the historical context, the economic, sociological variables that were happening when the New Testament was being written, then you can come to an evil conclusion that slavery is okay. The Bible says so. And it's because you don't understand the historical context of the first century. Or you can come with an equally evil conclusion. You can say, well, the Bible says slavery is good, so the Bible's wrong. Both of those are bad mistakes. And they come about when you don't understand the historical context of the New Testament. Historical context, when you discern that, okay, so what's going on in Isaiah's life when he's writing this, and in the nation of Israel when Isaiah's writing this, then you can say, okay, and what does that mean to me? Okay, here's the next one, number four. How does what you're reading fit with the whole counsel of God? And how does that apply to me? The whole counsel of God is so vitally important to get a hold of. So you get the totality of what's being spoken. And if you don't get that whole concept of the word of God, the whole counsel of God, then you can take a passage like in, in, in the gospel of Luke in chapter 14, where Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless a person hates his father and mother, his brother and sister, his children, then he can't be my disciple. And I've actually heard of, I've never met anyone, but I've heard of people turning their back on their family because of that verse. Does Jesus want you to hate your family? How in the world does that possibly fit with Jesus' words, in Mark chapter 12, where he says, love your neighbor as yourself? Or how does hating your family possibly fit with Jesus' rebuke of those who don't care for their parents as they age in Mark chapter 7? You see, as you're looking at that, you have to say, Jesus says that. I don't doubt that he said that, but that how does that fit with the whole counsel of God? And then you can begin to understand. So Jesus is speaking in a comparative kind of way that my love for my Savior has to make the most vital relationships I have look like hatred in comparison. I love my grandson like crazy. I love my wife. I love my children. But compared to my love for Jesus, <laughs> and that's Jesus' point, if you don't consider the passage you're reading in light of the full counsel of the word of God, you'll make some wrong conclusions. Number five. So what kind of writing is this anyway? Am I reading poetry? Then maybe I probably should take some of that figuratively and understand the leaves, the trees of the field aren't clapping their hands, nor is the earth rejoicing. <laughs> it's a planet. It doesn't know how to rejoice. Okay, I get that. Should I take it figuratively? Probably if it's figurative language. Should I take it literally? Probably if it's literal language. You ask yourself, what kind of book am I reading? What kind of text? Is it prophecy? Then is it about my future? Is it someone else's future? Is it history? Am I understanding from history here something that has happened in the past? Is this a letter of instruction to a church in Corinth? Or is this a letter of instruction to a young pastor named Timothy? What kind of stuff is this? And when you've discerned that, then you ask the question, so how does that apply to me? How does that fit with me? And then one more. What do other biblical passages say concerning the subject? So the axiom, the jargon for this is Scripture interprets Scripture. So if you don't know what to do with this passage of Scripture, you look at other places and see how does it handle that. Or you could look at parallel passages. We are really blessed. When it comes to the accounts of Jesus' life, we have four of them. One written by a man named Matthew. Another written by a man named Mark. A third, written by a man named Luke. And a fourth, 
written by a guy named John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what we call the synoptic gospels. That means they're kind of the same as one another because they're telling the same stories many times just from a different perspective. How cool is that? That if we don't understand something in Mark, we can go over and say, so how does this this come across in Matthew? That's really cool. And then John, he's writing from a whole different, maybe a deeper, more spiritual perspective. And I always see that he kind of acts like the glue that fastens them all together. How blessed are we to have that? So when when you're struggling with a passage, look at what other texts say about it in the Bible and discern what it means. And then how does that apply to you? Heard a story years ago about a, uh, a woman who uh, said to the pastor, I loved what you talked about this morning. I wish I knew more about it. And he said, oh, here, I have a commentary on this book of Philippians. You're welcome to borrow it. She was an educated woman. She was smart. She was a good reader. She took this thick book home. She brought it back the next week, and she handed it to the pastor and said, that's a really good commentary. The Bible really helped me understand it. You get her point? Because <laughs> the Bible, the commentaries are good. I use them every week, right? But the Bible speaks for itself, and it is our authority. Now, you may be saying, well, those six things, who wants to do that? Let me just tell you, you do it all the time. You do it all the time. When you get a letter from someone important in your life, or an email from someone important, or a lengthy text from someone important, you ask these very kinds of questions as you're reading it. It's something we do commonly. This week, I... uh, I got a letter in the mail from, I don't know who it was, Columbus Bible Society. I never heard of them, something like that. I don't even know if that was it. And I opened it up and I went, yeah, 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 yeah. And I put it in the trash because it was junk mail. Is that what you do with junk mail? You wouldn't believe how much, yeah, that's what you do with junk mail. Good job. You would not believe how much junk mail churches get. So yeah, 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 threw it in the trash. Oh, I also, I didn't know if I told you this or not, but recently I got a lengthy email from my wife and I went, yeah, 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 and I threw it in the trash. You know I didn't do that, right? By the way, she didn't write me a lengthy email, but if she would have, it'd be a good illustration, so pretend she did, okay? And you know that I would not do that. If my wife wrote me a lengthy email, here's what I would do. I would say, what's the point of the writer? And what's the textual context of some of the things I don't understand? And where is she right now in her life's journey? And how does this passage fit with everything I know about Laurel's life? And is she writing me a poem or is this a recipe? And... And what do other things she's written help me understand? You do this all the time. Do it with God's word. Do it with God's word. I want to pray that you will. Let's stand together, shall we? Father in heaven, we desperately need to hear from you. We need to look to you. So help us to do that. Help us to understand what it is you have to say to us. Help us not to plug into an Instagram Bible. Help us to revere the Bible the way evidently, evidently, people have come to revere it through the centuries so it has changed their life. May it change our lives because we study and show ourselves approved as workers who don't need to be ashamed, rightly handling your word, the word of truth. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen.